Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz violinist and composer Nora Tremaine. She talked about her latest album, Go For It, and how she spent a lot of time growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. She was introduced to music by her violinist parents and cellist grandmother and went on to become the first ever violinist to graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree in jazz studies from the renowned USC Thornton School of Music. She was mentored by Marshall Hotkins, the former bass player for Miles Davis and many others, and she has been around quite a bit at a young age with her sound and her wisdom. She's also an author, and she'll get into that. So please get to know her and dig this interview, my friends. Okay, wonderful. Again, thank you, Nora, for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and start off here and talk about the latest album, Go For It. You've been at it for quite a while now in the jazz world. Talk to me about this album a little bit. This album actually is my fourth one. Um, And then I released one after that, actually, with my guitarist, Miles Jensen, called The Present Moment. I It was the first time that I recorded an album in uh, New Orleans, which was a, a wonderful experience. I went down there and played with pretty much a full band of New Orleans musicians, which was a lot of fun. And it's the longest album I've ever done. It's I don't know how long it is. It's going to be 16 tracks or something like that. So I'd never done a project quite that long before. It was the first album that I had ever crowdfunded as well. So it got a lot of attention online because... Um, I was able to get 500 pre-orders of it or something like that, which I guess in jazz is a bit of an achievement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so it, it was a lot of first. Yeah, well, you know, the one thing that's always interesting about the crowdsource funding is that that has to be an immediate gratification up front because you never know what the reception is going to be. But before you go into it, you already know what it is. That has to feel good. Well, what do you mean before we go into it? Who knows what it is? Yeah. So. I, well, I, I mean, when I had raised all the money for this, I hadn't recorded even one note of it yet. Yeah. So um, I didn't exactly know how it was going to turn out. In fact, once I had the money, I wasn't even sure that I was going to go to New Orleans. The amazing thing about crowdfunding, which basically is just a global online pre-order store, basically is what it is. You're just saying, hey, would you like to buy it early? The amazing thing that happens when you do that is that you uh, grow this... Uh, you know, global, international community of people who know about your music, and a great number of developments can happen. So there's actually somebody who had uh, purchased a copy of the album early. He said, hey, I've got a studio in New Orleans. You should come down here and do it. And I thought, oh, God, that would be so crazy and fun, and we figured out a way to make it work. So um, that actually, uh, that person, um, I wouldn't have made that contact with them if they hadn't found my music online with my campaign and everything. So um, even more than, you know, making some money and selling some copies of it before it comes out, you can create new fans and new friends, and, you know, that is a really awesome aspect of it as well. Speaking of regions and, and parts of the country, you grew up in L.A., correct? I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I grew up there, and then I well, I went to high school in California in a boarding school, and then I, I moved to New York City to go to college, and then I finished college back in L.A. So I've kind of been back and forth. So talk to me about your childhood in Madison. How did you get involved with music, and how, more specifically, did jazz become a part of your world? So um, my parents were both classical violinists professionally in the Madison Symphony. They introduced me to violin when I was about two, Obviously, it took a few years for me to really get playing, you know. But by the time I was about 10, I was playing, you know, a lot. And 
my mother had a tour group within the violin school that she had, and it was like a group of young adults, you know, like teenage and maybe like, you know, tween children, so ages like 12 to 15 or 16 or something. And a bunch of us would play concerts all over the Midwest. And actually, much later after I left home, um, she, she ended up taking them all the way to Costa Rica and Washington, D.C. and all sorts of places. But um, when I was in it, um, we, we would play all over, you know, Milwaukee and Chicago and places like that. So I kind of got some experience going on tour with this violin child group. <laughs> and then I, I left home when I was 15. I went to boarding school. And then I met this guy, Marshall Hawkins, who became my first jazz teacher. He, Without him, I probably wouldn't even play jazz. But, you know, sometimes it's the right person who makes you see things in a new light. So then after that, I kind of broke away from classical playing, which I never really... I didn't really get into playing classically professionally kind of at all because I was pretty young at that point. I was about 15, and there was kind of a crossroads happening. So I jumped the classical boat, and I, I landed safely on the jazz boat, and um, that's kind of, you know, what I've been uh, doing ever since. So Marshall was the former basis for Miles and Shirley Horn. Um, yeah, and many other people. I mean, he's like um, somebody who, you know, People would go see Marshall at clubs and stuff, and people like McCoy Tyner would walk in and say, oh, Marshall, and go up and give him a hug, and everybody would be looking around like, what? Because Marshall was playing in the jazz scene, you know, with these really heavy people for years and years and years and years. And then he didn't really gain much notoriety um, kind of until a little bit later in his career, but a lot of his days and his youth a lot of people didn't really know about. So he's kind of this hidden treasure. Like, you know, we would be, when we were in high school, we'd be listening to these, you know, old records and say, Marshall, have you checked this out and that? He said, check that out. I'm on the record. What are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> so he's kind of like that kind of a vibe, you know. So what kind of wisdom did he impart, having all of that mileage on his radar? Did, did, did he give you a lot of good advice? Well, yeah. I mean, he basically kind of raised me, actually. He was, um, he was, more than just a music teacher, you know, he was somebody, he's kind of like Yoda, a person who kind of mentors your entire personality, your entire, um, what, what am I trying to say? He he wasn't interested in just talking about, okay, here are the chords, and here's how you can solo on them, or, you know, here's a new tune. Or, he was always like, how are you feeling today? What do you plan to express through your playing? And, and you know, he, he would find out a lot more about us than most other teachers. He, he wanted to know where we grew up and how we saw the world and what our insecurities were and what our strong places were as people, you know, not just as musicians. And so he was kind of this total mentor rather than this very narrow-minded, you know, here is the 32 bars and after that get out of my office. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was very personal. So the one thing I've noticed, too, is that you were the first violinist to graduate with the Bachelor of Arts from the uh, USC Thornton School of Music. Yeah. What, what what was that like, to be a first in, in a program that's so prestigious? First off, I'm very grateful that they allowed me to do something that hadn't really been done before. And just to be clear, there were other violinists who had 
done, we would played some jazz there, but there was nobody who had really ever majored in it. I mean, yeah, I'm very grateful to them that they allowed me to uh, sort of be myself. And, and, and what they said to me in my audition was, you know, we don't really have a jazz violin teacher for you. And I said, well, that's okay. You know, I'll just learn from um, any other, you know, jazz teacher. So I ended up taking lessons a lot with this guitarist called Bruce Foreman, who's quite uh, well-known, especially in, like, sort of the hard bop world because he played with Freddie Hubbard and um, all sorts of great people and Richie Cole and stuff. So I, I told them, you know, if you just give me a good teacher, even somebody who doesn't play violin, because at that point I already could play violin, you know. They kind of allowed me to sort of find my own way, you know, and uh, my major became kind of a pastiche of a few other majors because, you know, they said, well, the saxophonists are learning this, so why don't you learn this? And then next week it, it was, oh, the guitar players are doing this, so why don't you do that? And so I kind of learned uh, a bit of what everybody else was learning and sort of threw it together in my own uh, way. And it also helped that a lot of the faculty at USC had played with Marshall. So because, you know, Marshall's living in Southern California as well. So when I, in my audition, when I told them that I've, I've been a student of Marshall's and, um, uh, you know, we had known each other for a long time, that sort of gave me a bit of clout with them as well. So, yeah, I'm very, I'm very grateful. So you've gone on in your life to perform with a lot of people from, uh, you know, Clayton Cameron, John Batiste. You've been all over with a lot of different people. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what, so my, my question, I'm trying to formulate my question here. My question is this. There's yeah. a symbiosis that goes into it. They're going to get something from you. You're going to get something from them. What, what yeah. is it when you get with these people? What, what do you bring and what do you take from what you, you experience? That, I mean, that question has as many answers as there are combinations of people that you can work with, obviously. It's like, you know, if you ever go online and you find, for example, I was looking last night at, at these TED Talks, or uh, maybe they weren't TED Talks, any kind of lecture, and I saw that there was one between Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Branson, two people that I admire very much. And I thought, gosh, I'll watch that because those two guys are really interesting and I want to see what they're going to say together. So basically what you get is kind of life. It's what Louis Armstrong said, what we play is life. And I think, you know, when you get together with somebody, you just want to be able to kind of hear and feel their life experience, you know. I don't think it's like, you know, something incredibly esoteric or complicated. I think it's more just, you know, you want to be able to express yourself using, you know, your life experience, you know, you don't want to be thinking about these complex, you know, harmonic ideas, you know, you don't want to play about that. When you get together with somebody, you just want to be able to sort of exchange this expression of life, you know, and whatever comes to the moment. If you're feeling, you know, very sad one moment with somebody, maybe you get together and you play a ballad. If you're feeling nostalgic for New Orleans, maybe you get together and you play a blues or, you know, uh, something like that. So I think it's just, it's kind of an honesty thing. And I think both people, hopefully, when you, or, or all, all people involved, hopefully, are giving and receiving an equal amount of each other's kind of life experience, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it's, yeah, it does. So speaking of themes and how life kind of unfolds, you know, you're in different contexts as far as, you know, being your own solo artist, you've worked with, you know, people like Sam Smith, you've been in jazz orchestras. Is your approach changed quite a bit based on 
scenarios you're in, or do you just play, and that's just who you are? Yeah, it does change, and I, I don't actually work with other people as much as I used to because I'm getting much more focused on my own show. But leading leading my own show, I also have a number of special guests, and I am a special guest with other people fairly often. So definitely, even as my career becomes a little bit more specific, you know, I'm, I'm sort of specializing more and more. As time goes on, I'm still having you know, lots of situations happening for the first time. So given that context, I would say definitely it changes because you you want to fit the situation. You want to fit, you, you know, you want to be appropriate. So you have to sort of feel the audience out, the venue, the people that you're playing with. You know, I probably play something very different working with Martin Taylor versus like Tommy Emanuel versus Zane Carney versus, you know, John Etheridge. And those are just like four different guitar players, you know. Um or like you know, I'll play very differently with John Baptiste than I would with, um, you know, some other pianist. I can't think of anybody else, but you know, um, so you, you definitely want to match what's going on on stage or in the recording studio. You don't want to come there and just blast them because you know, people want somebody who's going to compliment their dish. You know, it's like they're cooking and they're hiring you and they're saying, hey. How can you make my souffle that extra little thing? You're not going to say, well, let's toss your souffle out and make a cheesecake. Like, you know, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, well, sure, add a little fruit compote or something to the side. And, you know, so you have to be tasteful, I would say, is is, is the overarching theme. I just try to be tasteful to what other people are doing. You know, in addition to, you know, the performances, you've had a lot of work with film and TV and music videos. Has that been kind of a goal of yours to get more into that realm? And, and, and how much more exposure have you gotten because of that? I've probably gotten some, I guess. Um, especially when, you know, music videos, are, you're, you're in something that gets seen a lot on the Internet. I mean, basically, whether you get exposure, exposure for it or you get more known for it or not depends on if there's a video for it online, um, as with pretty much everything. But um, I didn't... Well, at first, when I was sort of, I'm sort of planning this sort of career thing as I go, obviously, because, um, you know, we don't know, you know, what we are going to like until we try it, you know. So at first, I thought it would be so great to be a session musician, you know, like a few years ago, um, like when I was moving to L.A., maybe that was seven years ago or something. I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I, I would love to play on a lot of sessions and with a lot of different people. And, and now I've done that. And that's been wonderful, and I, I definitely learn a lot doing that. I think I get better a lot faster when I record, because when you record, you have to play on a higher level than when you're playing live. You have to be more tasteful and more in tune and more, you know, inspired. And, and you know, we often don't have unlimited takes. You maybe have one or two takes. And, and so recording is great for improving your chops and improving your sensibility. But... um Honestly, I don't think I'll be quite as busy of a session musician and a for hire musician forever because, as I said before, I'm very interested in focusing my energy pretty much on my solo career. That being said, there are some people who um, I have worked with and would like to work with that I'm sure I'll continue to work with, you know, for forever. So, Right on. Let me talk to you about your life as a author. That's kind of oh, another yeah. component of you as a creator. How did that come about, and how does that play into your whole creative mix as a artist? I decided 
to write this book, uh, I guess it was a couple years ago that I first had the idea for it. Basically what happened was um, I was gaining a lot of, I guess, wisdom, really, through all these experiences, being on stage, you know, playing with people for the first time, not really having rehearsed anything, and so on and so forth. There were a lot of experiences like this that really were very illuminating to me, and a lot from Marshall and, and over the years, you know. And I would tell people some stories sometimes, and they said, you know, Nora, you should be an inspirational speaker. You should be an author. You should be this and that. But I'm not doing that. I'm just a jazz violinist, you know. But as time went on, I, I accrued more and more information. I kept some notes in my phone and, you know, little things, little kernels of whatever. And then I felt like, you know, I really should get this out there. And I thought, well, I could make a, a blog. But I thought, well, maybe I don't want to have a blog. You have to keep it up. And I thought maybe I could do a video series, but I thought that might, you know, be quite laborious at the time. I thought, well, I don't know. And so it, anyway, it came to me, well, you know, Nora, you're just going to have to actually write a book. So so I so I wrote it. Uh, it took me about a year to finish it. I wrote the rough draft in about two weeks, but then, of course, it took me a whole uh, a year to edit it after that. And then... Um, it's been wonderful. I mean, certainly I, I'm i a rather young author. I mean, I wrote my book when I was 24, and it was published when I was 25. So a lot of people thought it was, I mean, maybe a bit arrogant or, you know, sort of like, you know, I was that person at the party who wrote a memoir in their 20s, and they're like, oh, God, here we go. Um, huh. But I really didn't mean for it to be that way, and I, I talk about that in my book. It was really basically more of a, a guide of inspiration and uh, wisdom. A lot of it, actually, from older musicians, people like Clayton Cameron and others, um, that I just thought would be helpful for young people who are in a similar place that I am, which is like sort of in the beginning of their careers. So basically, I just wrote it to inspire my my colleagues, my young colleagues, and of course, to uh, you know write a bit about myself because a lot of people around the world have been asking me a lot of questions. Um, not unlike the questions you're asking me, and I thought, well, maybe I could just, you know, write it all down. I mean, I don't know. So it was kind of an experiment, but, I mean, it's, I've certainly gotten some great compliments about it. I mean, Alan Paul from the Manhattan Transfer, he's a friend of mine who I've worked with, and he said he loved the book very much, and, and Bill Cunliffe, who's a great jazz pianist here in L.A., he loved it as well, and and, and so I'm very pleased that people have enjoyed it, you know, so it, so we'll see if I, I write another one. <laughs> nice. Well, as you mentioned, you know, you have a memoir, you know, at, at a young age. You've been on a lot of albums released on your own and others that you've been on. At this point in your career, when you look down the road a little bit, let's say 10, 15 years down the road, what do you want to see happen? First question when I ask you, let's say in 10, 15 years, what's going on, what do you want to see happen with your career? Well, there are some things that I want to do that I actually have not told the public yet, so... Some of this has to be a little bit under wraps. All I can say is really just, you know, follow follow me carefully because things are bound to change. But I will say, um, you know, I would like to just be really touring the world with my own band, um, like, you know, in a pretty major way, you know, playing in the biggest venues really in the world. That's what I want to do. I want to play, you know, in theaters and concert halls and places like that. And, you know, playing a combination of my own music with uh, some standards that I love and, you know, having an array of special guests 
Um, but touring regularly, I mean, I'm, I'd be very happy to be on the road pretty much all year because I love to perform. It's really, it's, it's actually quite depressing how much I love it because it's such a small part of my life. I mean, uh, the hours I spend on stage are not very much compared to the hours I spend you know, driving or cleaning my house or just in my daily life, picking up my dry cleaning, whatever. Even in any given day, even if you're performing every day, you're only going to be on stage for a couple hours out of 24. So honestly, when I'm not on stage, I wish I were, and that's pretty much all the time. So um, I I would love to be touring the world consistently. That's, that's what I'll say in, in 10 years down the road. So you're in kind of an elite group of of musicians. The violin is not a common jazz instrument, so to speak. Well, and I want to add, it certainly used to be a lot more common. Yeah, right. It did. Yeah, and now it seems to be kind of a niche thing. And my question is this: from kind of the long annals of inspirations that you've had in your life as a musician, let's get fantastical and say that you've got a jazz DeLorean in front of your house. You can go anywhere you want and see a musician live. Where are you going to go? Who are you going to see? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, this would be a very, very difficult thing for me to say because, I mean, I'm born in the 90s. So, you know, there's very few people who have inspired me that I've that I've seen. I will say the best jazz concert of my life that I ever saw was Tony Bennett. Wow. Um, at the Hollywood Bowl. That changed my life. But um, I would probably... Go back in time first. I mean, I would love to see Stefan Grappelli live. He died in 1997 when I was six. And my parents saw him, but I was much too young to have seen him. So that would be wonderful. I would love to see Clark Terry. And um, regretfully, I didn't get a chance to see him when he was still living. Um, but I read his book and I watched his film, and, and he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. Um, I also would love to go back and see Oscar Peterson. His daughter, Celine, has become a friend of mine. Actually, we met at the Idlewild Jazz Festival, which Marshall Hawkins uh, founded 30 uh, years ago. I was playing there this year, and Celine happened to uh, be there. And uh, I would love to go back in time and see Oscar Peterson. And maybe um, for people who are living who I have not yet seen, Seen live. Let's see. Probably, I mean, I've, I've seen most of the people who I or worked with most of the people who I really, really love, um, which is amazing. But uh, you know, there's a guitar player in Sweden called Ulf Wakenius, and he worked with Oscar Peterson for a long, long time. But Ulf is an amazing solo musician, and he has an act with his son Eric Wakenius. <clears throat> the two of them, uh, they tour the world together. I would love to see Ulf Wakenius because he is just an amazing player. So there you go. There's kind of a list for you. <laughs> so answer me this. Why do you love jazz? Because jazz loves me, you know, of course. I love it because uh, it, it allows you to be who you are, you know. Uh, I find that classical music, now this is, how I feel. Many of my classical violinist friends love classical music and feel very free and alive. But to me, classical music is a bit constraining. You know, you have to sound like this and you have to bow this way. And the stroke is not too much air and it's not a little bit of air. And it's you know, and so there are all these sort of little uh, 
details when you're playing classical music that I find very um, confounding and sort of impossible to recreate. You know, the conditions for me to play well in classical music are just a little bit overwhelming, which is why I don't really do it. But I love jazz because, you know, every time you play a tune, you can play it however you want. And as long as it's who you are and as long as it's authentic to your personality, then it's uh, it's undeniable, you know. And that's that's true for everybody, whoever wants to play jazz. It's, it's just about expressing how you feel in the moment. And I find that so incredibly liberating. And then, you know, of course you feel that the music loves you when you play like that because the music is just dying to have somebody express it. Um, so you kind of become, um, you know, uh, you know, there can be lots of jazz music in people's minds, but until somebody picks up their horn or picks up their fiddle or sits down at the piano or the drum kit or whatever, it's not going to come out. So we are the ones that sort of bring it from the head and the heart into the ears of other people through the air, you know. That's why I love it, because I feel so free when I play it. So let me ask you this. Everyone has a perception of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans. Yeah. But who are you? <laughs> who who do you think you are? <laughs> uh, in To whom? <laughs> well, that's it. To you. you you're to the me. one that's piloting this ship, and you're full of all of these things that are you. But everyone's yeah. going to see you as something different. But you're the right. one that's in charge who are you uh i i think i am uh an intelligent headstrong ambitious successful and creative woman you know i am a person who has very high ideals and a strong sense of personal and creative integrity and I'm a person that wants to make people feel good. When I walk on stage, I want them to smile. Not because I want them to smile at me, but because I want them to enjoy themselves. I guess I'm I'm sort of committed twofold, really. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, when I really, even if, you know, I had no fans and no records and no performances, I'm still committed to these two things, even if it was just me playing in my house for my dog or whatever. I I just stick to my integrity and I try to make people feel good when I play and that's I think that's sort of the heart of who I am even if I couldn't play violin anymore God forbid and I was just I, all I could do was whistle or something or play the kazoo I would still be that person you know it's it's a question of who you are even away from your instrument because a lot of people kind of use their instrument as a sort of crutch like you know, they the instrument is a sort of gimmick, it's a ploy, it's a cover-up, or, you know, it's an addition or something. But I, I feel that an instrument is should really just be an extension of who you really are without it, you know. So, uh, yeah, that, I don't know if that's very clear, but I do feel very strongly that 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 is really who I am. It's clear, it's very clear. I don't think anybody, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody ever answers that question and feels like they've stayed satiated the rest of it, but every answer is the answer. That's it. Well, There's no the other way. Well, the real answer would have to be some kind of silent meditation 
resonating in your own soul. I mean, once you put things into words, they kind of lose their meaning, which is the sad thing about trying to describe music or any of these, any of like your question about what you get and what you uh, give when you play with other people. Of course, as soon as you say what it is, then then you've then you've totally lost the meaning of it. But anyway, uh, we can try our best to describe these things. Yeah. <laughs> right, and I guess the beauty of the process is that you can prove your own self wrong, you know, which is good because oh, sure. there, there you can upstage, and it's kind of like that whole adage that your senior year of high school is your best of your life, and that seems awfully sad to me because right, <laughs> you want life to get better and better, so yeah. Well, well, yeah, sure, and it, you're constantly correcting your course. I mean, I'm very, I'm very, um, I was going to say strict, but that's not quite the word. I'm very um, interested in looking at my life, you know, on a daily basis, you know, how I spend my time and and where that direction is really leading me specifically. You know, there's this old uh, saying, um, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to end up where you're headed. And what that means is if you're taking a step to the north, but in your heart of hearts, you know you want to be going south. Well, someday, you know, you're going to need to reconcile that. You're going to need to turn around, which is why I was saying um, before how I I don't really have an ambition to be a studio musician for the rest of my life because, um, I mean, to some extent perhaps, but certainly not, I don't want that to be my main thing because I want to tour the world with my band until I drop dead. That's really what I want to do. So, you know, at some point, which actually it's funny that we're having this interview right now because I'm sort of going through this fork in the road right now where I'm I'm really having to sort out my priorities and and figure out, you know, how many of these sessions should I really be doing and and am I taking the right steps to make sure I'm doing more and bigger shows, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So you really have to take a hard look at what you're doing and and ask yourself, really honestly ask yourself, if it's going to lead you to where you to where you want to go, you know. Absolutely, I think we've covered a lot of good bases here, Nora. Thank you for taking some time out talking about the newest album and about your life and art. I appreciate it. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much for asking me to do it. I'm so flattered. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Los Angeles, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Nora for her time, her stories, and all that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.